0: Let's stand together and this is our last installment on the book of Jude. Next Sunday morning we're going to, take, uh, we're going to start a series on the 10 words and I'll explain what that's going to be um, next week. But um, this is what I call the magnificent benediction. These words that we're going to read in just a moment are probably some of the most beautiful words that you're ever going to read in the Bible and filled with hope. So I'm reading the blue. And you are reading the white, and we just got two slides actually. And if I were really being honest, it's just one uh, sentence that I wanted to break up, so uh, here we go. Uh, Now, to Him, obviously talking about God, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory. Majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful and thankful that you are our God and that we are your sons and your daughters, that we are brothers and sisters together. And together we are overwhelmed and blown away by your extravagant love for us in Jesus Christ. And the work and the help and the assistance of your Holy Spirit to take what you have done in Jesus and done through Jesus and make it possible and applicable and available to our lives. And so we ask today for the help of the Spirit to speak, to hear, to understand with our hearts, Lord, to comprehend with our minds and particularly... Lord, for the power of your spirit to go out of this place this weekend, this week. And Lord, in our homes, in our marriages, our families, our relationships, in our schools, in our places of work, in our neighborhoods, on the, Lord, wherever it is that we find ourselves and the being the hub of relationships and influence, that Lord, that you would empower us to live out tangibly and Lord, to live out in meaningful ways what it means to be christ followers, to be the disciples of Jesus Christ. May your light and your love and your hope shine through us. And this we pray in Christ's name, amen. I want you be seated and uh, I forgot to wish you happy uh, family day. So there is this fable about six blind men and an elephant. And The first blind man touches the side of the elephant and says, Hey, an elephant is like a wall. The second blind man, he touches the trunk of the elephant and he says, Wow, an elephant is like a snake. The third blind man touches the tusk of the elephant and says, Wow, an elephant is like a spear. The fourth blind man touches the leg of the elephant and says, An elephant is like a tree. And the fifth blind man touches the ear of the elephant and says, an elephant is like a fan. And then the last, the sixth blind man touches the tail of the elephant and says, an elephant is like a rope. Like these blind men sometimes, different people have different misconceptions about God. Who is God like? What is God like? Well, God is like nothing, like no one we have ever known or could ever know. And Jude begins with the great personal pronoun. And he says these words, he says, Now to him who is able, God is the only person who gives us a foundation for life and living which nothing and no one else can shake in one of his letters to the scholar erasmus 500 years ago martin luther wrote these words he said your thoughts about god are too human erasmus was quite uh, resented the remark especially it coming from the son of a miner But Erasmus also knew that it was deserving. Even the best amongst us, even the brightest of us, can lose our perspective on who God is. That our thoughts of God can become too human. It was the French Atheist Voltaire, actually, who is is credited with the saying that God made man in his own image and then man returned the favor. And too often it's true, isn't it, that we see God in the light of our own limitations and we see God in the light of our own weaknesses. And when our thoughts about God become too human, we lose another perspective as well. Our problems, our difficulties, and even life itself at times can become overwhelming or can be or sometimes is. When our thoughts about God become too human, at least two things happen. First and foremost, we dishonor God because the reality is that any thought that is about God that is too human is to dishonor God. But the second thing is that we also do a disservice to ourselves. And so, we, you and I, we need to be reminded by Jude's words, and he says these words, Now to him who is able. There are a number of references in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that talk about the ableness or the ability of God. I've given you a list in your notes of seven. But two for me that are very meaningful and uh, powerful, Uh, one from the Old Testament one from the New Testament. The first one comes to us from uh, Daniel chapter 3 verse 17, one of the most familiar stories in the entire Bible. And this is the story about King Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon who sets up this golden image and he says everybody in the land is to, to bow down and worship him or worship him through this image by honoring this image, of course, and you know If you know anything about the Bible, you know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are the three Hebrew children, which were really men. And they, of course, do not bow down. And what happens is, as a result of not bowing down, they are taken into custody and they are put into this oven. And the Bible tells us that this oven is heated, or furnace is heated, seven times hotter than it normally is. And this is what they say to King Nebuchadnezzar. They say, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand. The second one that I really like is in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. And these are the words of Paul to Timothy And Paul says, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And that brings us to this, that God is able to preserve us in the present, in the present time. And Jude says now unto him who is able to keep us to keep us. Now, what's interesting is the same word that uh, that is used by Jude to keep us is the same word that Paul uses in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12. It's the idea here, it's a military word actually, and it's the idea of a, a military guard around a prison. It also means this, it literally means to be kept from a frontal attack. The story is told about the, um, the uh, monk, Frederick Nolan. Frederick Nolan was on the run from his enemies when persecution of the church took place in northern Africa. And while he was on the run and being chased by his enemies, he had no place to hide, and so he came to this small cave. And he got inside the cave because there was nothing else to do, and while awaiting for his uh, pursuers to catch him and put him to death, he noticed that there was a spider. And as he was sitting in this cave, in the back of this cave, this spider began to weave this beautiful web over the mouth of the cave. When his pursuers came along, they saw this web that was woven over the mouth of this cave, and they assumed, because the 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 web wasn't broken or wasn't touched, that there's no way that Nolan could have gone in there, and so they just went on about their business. Later, after having escaped, Frederick Nolan wrote these words: "Where God is, a spider's web is like a wall." But where God is not, a wall is like a spider's web. And then there's this. Do you know why trapeze artists wow their audience and almost subdue them into silence? Do you know why parachute instructors give mind-controlling instructions to jumpers, first-time jumpers. By the way, did you hear about the 87-year-old woman who went parachuting for the first time in her life? She went up in the plane, they opened the door, and uh, she texts to her 89-year-old husband on the ground, I've got up, but I can't fall down. You'll get it. (laughs) Do you know why rock climbers use ropes? Or the sane ones, anyway. Or even why we put training wheels on our kids' bicycles when they're learning to ride? It's a gravity problem. It's our fear of falling. But there's also... A spiritual gravity problem. And Jude says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, or another translation says, Falling. Now, able to keep you from stumbling or falling. Now I can hear somebody saying, Hold on a minute. Just hold on a minute. If God is able to keep me from stumbling or falling into sin, then why was it that last week or last year or five years ago I actually fell into sin? If God is able to keep me from falling, then why did I fall? Why did I stumble? Now, we might argue that very thing. The premise that I'm a Christian and I have actually fallen into sin, or did fall into sin. And the response comes back, put your seatbelt on, no, you did not fall into sin. You walked into sin one step at a time. Because we know that spiritual failure is very seldom a blowout it's usually a slow leak. And what we know from the Bible is that while we were doing our one step thing at a time and moving towards sin, God was there all the time providing a way of escape. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken any of us But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able, may be able, may be able to endure it. You see, our thinking sort of goes along like this. I can watch a little nudity, Or, I can afford to take that little drink, although I have a problem with alcohol. Or, whatever it is that you and I are susceptible to, whether it be substance abuse, or lying, or stealing, or pornography, or gluttony, or greed. I mean, what's so so terrible about a little lie And we know how it works, don't we? We know how it works with sin and with temptation. We know the drill. I won't be tempted by this. I can handle this. And when we discover that we cannot and we do not and we did not, And we end up sinning and stumbling and falling hard. We come back with this foolishness and begin to blame God because we fell. Somebody said this. The chains of sin are too light to be felt until they are too strong to be broken. I've been reading through the book of Exodus and um, and I'm, I'm reading the story of um, Moses uh, bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt. And how that process unfolds. And at one point in the story, Pharaoh says to Moses three things. After God has pummeled him with plagues and problems, Pharaoh finally submits... And this is what he says to Moses. He says... I'll let you go. I'll let the people of Israel go, but not all of you, and not very far. And I'm reading through that, and all of a sudden I begin to realize that's exactly what sin does. That's exactly what sin does in our lives. I'll let you go, but not all of you, and not too far. You see... Jude says, God is able to keep you and me from stumbling and falling. But even when we do, even when you sin, even when I sin, the good news is that If we confess our sin, that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I mean, how can we lose? This is unusual grace, this is incredible good news. That God is able to keep you and I in the present. He is able to preserve us. And then Jude goes on and says that not only is he able to preserve us in the present, but he is able to present us in the future. He is able to present us in the presence of God in the future. Now... The opposite of stumbling or falling is standing. And I want you to notice there's a play on words here in in Jude. And I don't want you to miss this contrast between stumbling and standing. But there's also this. In the Bible, there are three types of presentations that are given. The first one is the presentation that we make as believers as offering our bodies as living sacrifices to God, Romans 12. Secondly, there is the presentation of one believer uh, uh, by another and this is where the Apostle Paul says that I'm offering you the Ephesian church to one husband which is Christ as a pure virgin. And then there is thirdly, the presentation of the church to Jesus. Matter of fact, actually Ephesians tells us that it's actually Jesus that presents the church to himself, which sounds a little odd in our thinking. But this is the presentation that Jude is talking about that is going to take place in the future, that you and I, we are going to be presented to heaven, to the Father, by Jesus. And Jude is telling us that he is able to keep us and he is able to present us to the Father in a future time. We all know what this means, right? Every time a bride walks the aisle, she is presenting herself to her groom. And you know what I've noticed in most weddings? Moors, the suit people... They're absolutely correct. Everybody else is watching the bride and only the bride and the groom's mother are watching the groom. That's it. All eyes on the bride. But I love what it says next. And I find this incredible hope. Jude says, to present you blameless. Faultless, without blemish, perfect. Now, wouldn't you like to be married to somebody like that? Right? (laughs) The Greek word, blameless, without fault, perfect, without blemish, actually is the word that talks about the Passover lamb that was to be offered. The lamb was supposed to be without blemish. That God is able to keep believers, you and I, from stumbling, but also to present me and you faultless, blameless, without blemish, perfect in God's sight. Without fault. And that brings us to this. The presence of his glory the presence of his glory that's where we are going to be presented we are going to be presented in the presence of God's glory now God's presence is described in the old testament as a glorious shining brightness now remember what i just told you a moment ago i've been as i've been working through the book of jude and preparing This series of sermons, I have also been reading through the book of Exodus. And one of the things that I discovered in the book of Exodus is that the ancient people of Israel, to stand in the presence of God's glory, was for them absolute sheer terror. It produced in them panic and fear. This is what Exodus says in Exodus chapter 20. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood afar off. And they said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But don't let God speak to us lest we die. Now, so I did a little bit of homework and I noticed that every time the glory of God, his bright, shining brightness is revealed in the Bible, there is a very similar experience that is had by all the people that experienced it. For example... We see Moses as he has hid himself, or God hides him in the crevice of the rock. In the end of Exodus, the last four verses of Exodus, it tells us that when Moses finally put the tabernacle as the tabernacle built, that the presence of God filled it, and it was of such intensity that the priests were unable to enter and minister. And the same thing is told us when they established and built the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 5. Isaiah, Isaiah 6, has this revelation of the glory of God. And and what's Isaiah's response? He starts to cry. Woe, woe is me. I am ruined. The disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. And for a moment, the glory of Jesus is revealed to them. And what do they do? They panic. The soldiers who come to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Bible tells them when Jesus says, here I am, and we already talked about I am this morning, all of a sudden the glory of Jesus for a moment is revealed and the Bible tells us that the soldiers fell backward to the ground. Now as Pentecostals, we would call that slain in the spirit. Paul, on the road to Damascus, has this encounter with the shining, glorious brightness of God and he falls off his horse. Actually, the Bible says that he is pushed off his horse or pulled off his horse and he is blinded and he is unable to speak for three days. And then in the book of Revelation, it tells us this, that when John saw the glory of God, he fell at his feet like a dead man. And so what we understand here is that the glory of God is such a dreadful thing that the common response by people is overwhelming fear, panic, terror. And there's this. The Bible tells us that no one can approach God's glorious, shining brightness. And even if we could we would be overwhelmed. To come face to face with God's glorious shining brightness is to be instantly overwhelmed by our sense of unworthiness. This past Thursday was Valentine's Day. Now, I'm not going to ask you how many of you Gave or received flowers, cards, candy, or other gifts. Or, how many of you had a romantic evening? And by that, I mean a candlelight dinner. Do you know one of the great advantages of candlelight? Everybody looks good. In candlelight. Matter of fact, everybody looks better. <laughs> in candlelight. But the problem is. Is when the candles are blown out. And the bright lights are turned up. And then we are seen for who we really are. Blemishes warts, and all. In God's bright, shining glory, every spiritual flaw, every blemish, every fault is revealed. In that glorious, shining brightness, everything is revealed. And so, the logical question is asked here in Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? And the logical answer comes back, no one. No one is able to approach God's glorious, shining brightness of purity and holiness. In God's glorious shining brightness, every flaw and every failure and every fault and every blemish is revealed. But Jesus changes all of that. He lived the perfect life for us that we could never live. He died the perfect sacrificial death, as Peter tells us, a lamb with a blemish and defect. And when you and I stand before God in the future, and when Jesus presents you and me and presents us to the Father and to heaven, we are going to hear from the Father, welcome. Welcome. I see you blameless. I see you faultless. I have no recollection of any sin. I like what somebody said. The concussion of the cross has wiped out all memory. How many of you grew up in Sunday school? Raise your hand. Come on, nice and high, Okay, me too, me too. Now, when we used to go to Sunday school, when I was a kid, I I was raised in a Pentecostal family and I was raised in church and went to church all my life. Matter of fact, when I was a kid, we had Sunday morning service at 11. We had Sunday school at 3 o'clock. And then we came back for evening service at 7 o'clock. That's just the way it was. But when, when, when I was a kid in Sunday school... There was a song we used to sing, and it went something like this. You ask me why I'm happy, so I will tell you why. Because my sins are gone. There underneath the blood of the cross of Calvary, as far removed as darkness is from light, in the sea of God's forgetfulness, that's good enough for me. Praise God, my sins are gone. The sea of God's, thank you, the sea of God's forgetfulness. When we stand in his presence, there will be no memory of sin, or fault, or failure, or falling, or stumbling. Because we will be seen through Jesus Christ as living a perfect life and of dying a perfect death. And you know where we get this business of the sea of God's forgetfulness? We get it from Micah. Micah says, "And he will again have compassion on us. And he will tread our iniquities underfoot, and he you will cast our sins into the depths of the sea." And somebody else wrote and said that God throws our sins in the sea of his forgetfulness and he posts a fishing, he posts a sign for Satan that says no fishing. But the response of the people, the ancient people of Israel before the glory of God was absolute fear and Panic. But when Jesus presents us to his Father, to heaven, without blame and without blemish and without fault, it's going to be a good day. And it will not be a moment of panic. It will not be a moment of terror. It will not be a moment of fear. But Jude says... Of joy. Of joy. Joy here is a very intense word. It's not the typical cultural meaning of uh, joy, you know, emotional happiness. I am so happy. It's not that. And it's not a private joy. It's a public joy. It is a public declaration of honor and praise. When we stand before God... And he presents us. He's going to say, here comes the bride. Folks, it's going to be a wedding. The joy and the celebration of a wedding. It's going to be a party. And then Jude concludes this magnificent benediction with one of the most striking doxologies in the entire Bible. And as I said at the beginning, that this is one of the most beautiful prayers you're ever going to read in the Bible. And he says these words, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Doxology comes from the Greek word doxa, which means glory. And a doxology is a proclaiming of glory. And so Jude ends this magnificent benediction in the very same way that he begins it. He begins and ends with God. And Jude says, to the only, and some translations add the word wise, to the only wise God, our Savior. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Did you know that the word Savior is used in the New Testament eight times of God and 16 more times specifically of Jesus? Be glory. the glorious shining brightness. Majesty that transcends all greatness. And then dominion, God's self-contained might and power. And then finally, authority. And then Jude, as I told you before, Jude loves threes. And because of that, preachers love Jude. And this is Jude's 14th triad. And he talks about the eternality of God. And I'm going to invite the musicians to come. He says before all time, now and forever. That the eternality of God involves the past. That God is before all time. It involves the present. That he still exists. And the future. That God's eternality. Is the one who was and who is, and who is to come. John, in the book of Revelation, four times says those words. And in Revelation chapter 4, verse 80, says these words, and the living creatures, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and is to come. And I thought, on this long weekend, on this family day, that we would stand together. And as we reflect today, we would sing these words and proclaim a doxology. Doxology. Proclaim the glory of God.